Good morning, everyone. We are continuing in the Lord's Prayer this week. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read from verse 7 through verse 15. Matthew 6, verses 7 to 15. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then verse 10, our verse for this week. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Shall we pray? Lord, we want to thank you that we can call you our Father. We thank you, Lord, that you have adopted us, Lord, into your family. And Lord, we thank you that your name is glorious, Lord, that we can worship your name and do so rightly, Lord, because all glory belongs to you. And Lord, we come here this morning desiring to do your will. Lord, we, we don't always know your will. Uh, we have some taste of it, Lord, but we do desire to do your will, Lord, and I pray that you would make that desire more real in us today. Even today, Lord, pray that your will would be done uh, as we read your scriptures, Lord, as we hear from them, as we hear your word, Lord, may your will be accomplished in this. We ask you, Lord, to teach us this morning. Uh, may your presence be with us, Lord, your spirit guiding us uh, as we look at your word this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. In the 2010 FIFA World Cup, Diego Maradona, the manager of the Argentinian soccer team, claimed that it was God's will that his team would progress to the final. Listen to what he says to the media ahead of the quarterfinal clash against Germany. He says, In the end, it is about whether God wants us to be in the final, but I know that it is God's will. This time we will not need the hand of God because it is the will of God. Pretty bizarre stuff. Why did Diego Maradona think it was God's will for his team to win? Did he sincerely believe that at the centre of God's eternal purposes was this soccer tournament? Or was he more trying to call down the name of God in some sort of desperate attempt to, to gain some divine interference in the tournament? Either way, it clearly didn't work with his team going down 4-0 to Germany in their subsequent game. But I think you'll agree that it's a strange thing that we should hear a human telling us what God's will is. Shouldn't we leave that to God himself? But Diego Maradona's not the only one who does this, and nor does it stop at soccer. We have people claiming God's will for, for all sorts of things, from the trivial like like soccer, like sports, like the weather for someone's day at the beach, 
right through to the most serious things of life, health, wealth, relationships, even crimes, the worst crimes. People claim the will of God for murders, for genocides. They think that they're doing God's will in doing such atrocities. And so we have people left, right and centre all claiming that they are agents of God's will, that God's will is with them. And you know what the scary thing is? The scary thing is that these people, most of them, will be praying exactly the same prayer, your will be done. And they would derive great, great power, great perseverance from that prayer to go out and do whatever it is that they do. So the question for us is how can we then discern the will of God? How can we know what the will of God truly is? How can we sift through all these claims of people's wills, of people's claims for God's will, and discern what it really is? I believe that to answer this question, we must hear from God himself. Why should we let any old person tell us what God's will is when we have the final word on God's will right here? So I want to take some time today to look at the, the grand purposes of God, look at what God's will is from his word. Now I realise that there will be people here this morning, probably a lot of you, who desire to hear a specific word from God. There's something in your life that you're not quite sure about, some questions that you have, a certain decision that you need to make. It could be, should I study or should I work? Should I accept this job offer in Hamilton? Is it the right time for me to marry? And whom shall I marry? Is it the right time to have children? Should I join this particular group or not? I'm sure there are questions that a lot of us have regarding God's specific will for our lives. And these are very important. We need to take the time to, to pray, to seek God, and to find out what his will is for our specific life circumstances. But this morning, I'm not going to give you a simple formula by which you can discern what God's will is. Instead, I want to turn to the scriptures so that we can see the bigger picture of God's will. Because I believe that if we have this bigger picture, if we know, that, if we know what God is really about, then a lot of these questions of the specifics will become a lot more easy to answer. I think about it this way. If you were travelling with me in a car and you were driving, but I knew the destination. So you didn't know where you were going, but you were driving. You would have to ask me at every single intersection, left, right, straight, and I have to tell you every single time. Okay, straight through here, left here. And so for hours on end, we get this monotonous kind of thing where you don't know your final destination, but you're finding out each step as, as it comes along. But consider then if you ask me, if you say, Malcolm, where are we going? What's our final destination? And I told you, I said, well, we're going to Gisborne. Then you might still need a few directions here and there, but when you've got the bigger picture, a lot of the smaller decisions will fall into line and you won't need to ask quite as many questions. And there will still be cases where you need to confirm what you think is the right way, and that's fine. There'll still be cases where you have absolutely no idea. You could be 
at an intersection with no signposts, and you'd have to ask me, and i say, okay, you go this way, and that's fine too. But you, can you see that in general, if we know the final destination, then it becomes a lot more easy on the ground as we're going there. And so I want to explore a few areas of God's will this morning, things that are really close to God's heart. And the first of these is that God's will is to bring glory to himself. We heard last week, of course, that God is about his own glory. That in everything God does, he seeks to declare his glory to all creation, to make a name for himself. And not only that, but he is right in doing so, because he is a good and a perfect God. And I don't want to repeat what Pastor said last Sunday about the glory of God, because I think he painted a very good picture of that for us. But from the scriptures, it's a very hard thing to escape this conclusion that the central, central to the will of God is his own glory. In Exodus, God says that he will bring glory to himself through Pharaoh and his army. Exodus 14.4 He tells Israel that he will bring disaster on them if they do not glorify and revere the name of God. Deuteronomy 28.58 God tells the Israelites that he will restore them as a nation, not for their sake, but for the sake of his holy name, for the sake of his glory. Ezekiel 36.22 The Psalms tell us that we are to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Psalm 29.2 And of course when Christ came, he showed us the glory of the Father. John 1.14 And he spoke of the Father as one who seeks glory. John 8.50. So through and through we see that the will of God is to bring glory to himself. Through his own word and deed, through his son, and through us, his people. But if it is the will of God to bring glory to himself, then just as important is the second one. And that is that God's will is to be in relationship with his people. Now let's think about this for a minute. If God seeking his own glory is a necessary will, since to be less than glorious would mean that he would be less than God, and therefore he wouldn't be God, so God must seek his own glory. But God being in relationship with his people is a totally free will for God. God doesn't need us. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to you. He would be God without us. He is what we call self-existent, and he has perfect community within the Trinity, quite apart from us. He doesn't, he doesn't need us to avoid loneliness or to be God. But for some reason, out of God's totally free and perfect will, he decided to create this universe, and he decided to create us, and he decided to seek a relationship with us. It is quite an astounding thought, really, uh, when we think about it, that God does not actually need us, yet God desires us. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, Through setting his love on people, God has voluntarily bound up his own final happiness with theirs. He has in effect resolved that henceforth, for all eternity, his happiness shall be conditional upon theirs. Isn't that amazing that God has, for no reason apart from his sovereign goodwill, good pleasure, 
he's created us and set his love on us. And that in some way he has actually tied himself to us so that our well-being is important to him. You know, we sometimes have this tendency to think of God as, as cold and emotionless. That God keeps his feelings in check so that he never experiences too much grief or too much joy. Like he has some sort of emotional hedge around him because, because that's what God does. But that is far from the God of the Bible. Listen to his words through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Ezekiel 16 verse 8. So here he chooses the most powerful human analogy that we have, that of romantic love, to describe the sheer depth of love that he has for us. And in doing so, he exposes himself to heartbreak and to pain, which of course is what we have subjected him to as humans. I want to caution you not to make the same mistake that I did for a long time, and that was of seeing God's love for, seeing God's love for us as only serving the greater purpose of his glory, of him making a name for himself. I thought that this was the case, and that in every passage that talks about God's love for us and his grace, that, that behind that passage was always this, this ulterior motive and that somehow because of that, God's love was artificial or manufactured. That maybe God was using his love for us and using us purely as a tool for him to gain more glory for himself. Now, of course, the effect of his love is that God is glorified. And love is a part of what makes up God's glory. But when we ask the question, why does God love you? Why does God love me? We must answer that God loves us because he loves us. Not because of anything good in you or me. And not really because God stands to gain a whole lot from loving us, but simply because he chose to set his love on us. And his love is true love. His love is real love. His love is authentic love. And his love is effective love. It accomplishes what it is set forth to do. And so it is God's will to love us and to relate to us, his people, as much as it is his will for his own glory. And where these two aspects of his will meet, his glory and his love, is his will for his salvation, for his saving of sinners like you and me. Paul puts it this way, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. That's Ephesians 1.5. So do you see that? That it was in love that he saved us and it is in accordance with his pleasure and his will and overall to the praise of his glorious grace. What a wonderful verse that sums up God's will for our salvation. And God's will for his salvation of you and me 
means that God sent his son to die on a cross. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was actually God's will that Christ was crucified so that you and me may be saved by him. Don't think that it was the Jews who crucified Jesus or the Roman government that crucified Jesus. Of course, they carried it out physically, but it was God's will. It was God's will to crush Jesus, and this is his plan of salvation for you and me. I want to turn now to another aspect of God's will, one that I think is very important, but is quite often neglected these days, and that is this, that God's will is for the church to prosper. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's all well and good talking about personal salvation, God's love for each of us individually and his glory. But what has the church got to do with the will of God? Well, let's, let's back the truck up here first just to provide a bit of background. In the early parts of the Old Testament, we see God relating very directly with his people. God the Father himself would speak, and in many cases audibly. Exodus records for us how Moses would meet with God in the tent of meeting and speak to him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And by many other signs and wonders, his people would see his presence and see his glory. And then as we get further on in the Old Testament, we see that God's involvement with his people is primarily through his prophets. Prophets were ordinary men who were empowered by God's spirit to bring a specific message to his people. This was just the way that God dealt with his people during this time. He would bring messages of warning, messages of judgment, warnings, telling people to repent, as well as, of course, promising the coming Savior. And then we fast forward to the Gospels, and we see the arrival of Christ, Jesus, the one whom God promised through the prophets who would come, the Savior himself. And while he was on the earth, Jesus himself was God's mouthpiece, wasn't he? He represented the Father, and he said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus spoke of judgment and of salvation. Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So Jesus was prophet, was priest, was king, as well as saviour. And Jesus died, was buried. On the third day he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And then what? Here's the big question. How would God's message of salvation be spread on the earth? There are no prophets anymore. Christ has ascended into glory. God doesn't often reveal himself and speak directly to us, although that does happen sometimes. So how does God speak to us these days? The answer is through the church. Did you realize this, that God's mouthpiece on earth, since the ascension of Christ and, of course, the work of the early apostles, is the church through the power of the Holy Spirit? So that is to say that God has entrusted us 
as a body of believers with this message of salvation through Jesus Christ. So that when people look at us, right here, this, this group of people in this building, that they see something of the kingdom of God. It's not for no reason that Jesus tells Peter when he instates him as the head of the church that the keys to the kingdom would be with the church. There is true authority and there is true power amongst God's people. So when we're praying for his kingdom to come, as we do in the Lord's Prayer, we're in effect praying that God would do his work through us, the church, that the church would be an effective witness and that the church would grow into what God wants it to be. <clears throat> it's quite a sobering thought, isn't it, that God would use us through the work of the Spirit as a body of believers to represent him. Now I know that some of you might be thinking, can't I do that on my own? Why can't I witness alone and speak the truth to the world alone? Why can't I pray alone, read my Bible on my own? Isn't my faith a personal thing? Can't I be doing the will of God and building his kingdom on my own? Lone Ranger stars? Well, the truth of the matter is that the Bible knows of no such Christians. And in some mysterious way, God actually represents himself through a body of believers rather than through individuals. Jesus says that it is by, lo by our love for one another that people will know that we are his disciples. That's John 13:35, And Paul says that we are the body of Christ and that each one of us is a part of that body. 1 Corinthians 12:27. So there is something unique and different in a body that is simply not found in individual Christians. I was reading something recently that talked about the church as a wilted side salad of our theology, that we're, we're all too keen to dig into the main course of, um, of predestination and personal salvation, but when it comes to the church, we leave it alone for the most part. And I think it's true. We major on all these other things of personal salvation, personal faith, personal discipleship. And we have all this excellent theology for all these things, but we so often neglect the church. But if it is true that the church is so central to God's will in this world, if it is true that he represents himself through the body of believers, if it is true that he has entrusted the church with the message of salvation, if it is true that God's kingdom is right here amongst us. If we pray the Lord's Prayer, then we must repent of our neglect of the church. And we must commit to building the church. And what does that mean? That means loving one another. It means fellowshipping with one another. It means praying with one another. It means learning with one another. And it means linking arms with one another as we go out into the world to further extend God's kingdom. So we've looked at four aspects of God's will. And when we come to our questions of God's specific will, we can see immediately a few questions we can ask to determine whether something is God's will or not. Does it glorify God? Does it show God's love for people? 
Is it about salvation of souls? And is it about building the church, building up the body of believers? I want to change tack now. We've heard a lot about God's grand purposes, about his overall will. And I believe that although some of us may still have specific questions about decisions in our lives, I think we know something of God's will to some extent. It might be something you've heard this morning. It might be something that God has been speaking to you over the last few days, few weeks. It might be something of his will that you've read in in the scriptures. Either way, I believe that you know something of God's will. And when we know something of God's will, we have two options, don't we? We can either resist that or we can embrace his will. To embrace God's will is to hear his word, to recognize his voice, and to joyfully obey him. There is this one phrase in our text which I haven't touched on yet, which says, on earth as it is in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, in heaven, God's will is done joyfully. It is not done begrudgingly but it's done trustingly, happily, thoroughly, and without further question. God's will is embraced fully by those who make their home in heaven, as it should be by us here on earth. Of course, there is the other option, which is to resist his will. And I can tell you now that that's not a good option. But, I think maybe there will be people here this morning who, who might be resisting God's will in some area of their life. And I hope I'm wrong in saying this, but, but I think that might be the case. And that you know what God wants you to do. And for whatever reason or another, you're not doing it. You're, you're being stubborn. You're being resisting his grace and his will. I think that the reason that we sometimes resist his will is that because we don't actually trust him. I mean, I can't think of any other reason why we wouldn't do God's will. His promise to us is that even if it's painful, even if it's difficult, even though we might suffer loss, that in doing his will and in loving him, that God will work all things for our good. So if we trust him, why would we not do his will? God's will is not to put you to shame, to crush you or punish you. It's what he did to Jesus on the cross. God's will for you is to give you a hope in the future and to give you good from his hand. So the question is, do you trust that God is working for your good when you do his will? even though there may be pain involved. Now, I don't know what specific things God has placed on your heart. I don't know what, I don't know every aspect of what God's will is for your life. But it could be that there is some sin in your life that he wants you to give up. It could be some sin that you need to confess to someone who's close to you. It could be to love your husband or your wife, as you should, to show affection. 
It could be a relationship that you need to end. It could be someone that you need to contact who you haven't contacted in a while. It could be someone that you need to forgive. Or it could be someone that you need to seek forgiveness from. It could be simply to give God more time in the Word and in prayer. It could be that if you're not yet a believer, it could be to respond to God's call on your life. It could be to commit to fellowship. It could be as simple as making friends with that person that you've seen at church the last few weeks. It could be speaking to your colleagues or your classmates about your faith. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that you will know if you are resisting his will in anything. And I know that if you trust in him to hold you and take care of you, then you'll be free to embrace his will as it is done in heaven. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for speaking to us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you do have a will, that, Lord, you haven't just set this earth um, as clockwork and, and let it work itself out, but, Lord, you are working all things for your good and for the good of people who love you. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are in control. Lord, I want to pray for us as a church, Lord. Lord, may you accomplish your will through us, Lord, as a body of believers. Lord, give us your spirit that we may be empowered to do your work. Lord, give us love for one another that we may be seen by those in the world to be for you. Lord, I pray for those who might resist your will. Lord, for those who know what your will is but don't want to do it. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would grant us all faith that we may see your good will and see that, Lord, in all things you love us and that you are working for our good, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your perseverance with us. Uh, and, Lord, we ask for your power that we may, uh, we may do your will um, as it is done in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.